if you keep in mind that sexual assault's about power and control and not really about sex, then what we see is an environment where a huge number of men um, are, are deeply disempowered. So in the vast majority of correctional settings, uh, prisoners are going to have virtually no day-to-day -day say over what their life looks like. They're told where to go, what to do, who to sit with, who to associate with, what kinds of programs they have access to. And for a certain percentage of those people, um, their need to find some way to assert their, um, their power over their environment is going to end up being sexual assault. Dear, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. And I'm your host, Skylar Dom. Today, we're going to talk about prison sexual violence. It's not something most people talk about often, but some statistics suggest that half of the sexual assaults that take place in a year in this country take place in prison. So I'm sitting down today to talk to Dave Reaney, who runs an innovative collaboration between the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center and the Massachusetts Department of Corrections to provide sexual violence education, counseling, and services to folks who are incarcerated. Quick side note, I also volunteer for this Rape Crisis Center, which may become obvious from our conversation. Here it is. So I thought we'd start with a little housekeeping, which makes it sound unimportant, but it's arguably the most important thing we'll do today. So I thought you could give us a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about prison sexual assault, which is obviously a difficult subject. So how would you like to introduce that? What I normally tell folks uh, when we're doing something like a trigger warning is the content of our conversation is going to be very heavily about people who've experienced violence. So especially for audience members who might have experienced violence themselves, this can often remind them of memories that are painful. Uh, so that listeners who feel that that might include them uh, in the category Take care of yourself. Um, if you don't want to listen to the whole podcast straight through, that's probably a good idea. If you want to take breaks or for other folks who decide that it's simply not subject matter they can listen to, that's understandable too. Great. Which brings me to our second piece of housekeeping, which is just vocabulary, because um, we're going to be using a lot of acronyms, I'm sure. So the first is that the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, we will probably refer to as BARC. And the second thing is we're going to be talking about PREA, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Um, so now that we have that out of the way, Dave, you run the PREA project at the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. So I thought you could orient us to the problem of sexual violence in prison. How big is the problem and what does it look like? Sure. So there's sort of two questions in that one question. Mm -hmm. um, how big is the problem? And when we're talking about it, I like to think of it in two different ways. So the first one is how many people are affected? by prison sexual assault. And that, that means really folks who are assaulted while they're spending time in a correctional facility. According to the biggest national research that we have right now, uh, which is the 2011-2012 um, inmate experience of sexual assault survey or something along those lines, it's, it's put together by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. We're looking at a number somewhere around 200,000 people um, in a year. Uh, are affected by, by sexual violence. And that can include rape itself, it can include unwanted touching or groping and things like that. So that's a lot of people. Uh, depending on what national statistics you're looking at, that can be um, pretty close to half of the total number of sexual assaults in the country, um, or, or a little bit higher or lower than that, again, depending on sort of what statistics you're looking at. So that's a lot of people. The second question, though, is sort of how does sexual violence impact 
folks who are incarcerated? Does it impact them in a different way um, than, than folks who are out in the community? Um, and that's one of the ways that we like to think about this problem too, because for a lot of survivors who are incarcerated, their access to healing resources is really limited. And so in some ways, the types of um, violence that folks who are incarcerated are dealing with isn't always the type of violence that they can recover from in the same way that a survivor who has access to therapy or counseling or supportive family members or um, something like Bark um, can do in the outside world. So the scope of the problem, the scope of the problem is really big, and the impact of the problem is is pretty intense as well. Mm-hmm. Back to the question of scope for a second. Um, so that's two hundred thousand people a year. What does that mean if you're looking at the prison population? What percentage of people in prison have experienced sexual violence at some point in their time there? That's a good question, and I'm not sure what the most recent research says about total sort of lifetime yeah. prevalence. Um, that same study that we just mentioned, the lead researcher is a guy named Dr. Alan Beck, mm-hmm. um, and the sort of big numbers that they came out with is about 4% of the prison population. Yeah. Now, prison uh, generally refers to long-term incarceration facilities. Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, those are places where folks who are serving two and a half years or more uh, mm-hmm. for a crime that they've been convicted of are going to spend their time. So about 4% of folks in prison and somewhere around 3%, I think the current number is 3.2% of folks in jail, uh, the, the places where folks will go where they're waiting their, their trial, um, are affected each year. Um, it's each hard, year? Each year. Oh, it's, wow. har- it's hard to tell over time how many folks might be affected multiple times or have been survivors of multiple types of, of assaults. Um, I know that we, we work on that kind of information at the national level. Um, but the, the indication seems to be that there's a pretty high prevalence um, in correctional facilities, and, and I would not be surprised if the number of folks who've experienced an assault over the, the entirety of their incarceration is pretty high, too. Yeah, and those numbers are, as, as for male populations, much higher than the, the free population. We think so. Yeah. We think so. Um, it's not always easy to tell how many men are, are being assaulted and just never tell anyone or never report it. Um, but those numbers are a lot higher than what we see as reported crime outside of the correctional population. So to the second point of the question now is the intensity of the experience. What is unique about coping with sexual violence in prison? Well, let's take a step back. Step back. What's unique about sexual assault in prison? And what's unique with what's unique about the recovery process and how do people cope inside? So the first part of your question is, is a really interesting one because the way that I look at it, um, what's unique about sexual assault in prison is, is sort of how not unique it is. All of the exact same things that we think cause sexual violence, that exacerbate it, that sort of allow it to flourish in the civilian world are almost uh, hyper, um, hyper highlighted in a correctional setting. So uh, rigid hierarchy, um, power and control and dominance, those are all the same things that we see in, in a correctional setting. Um, and those things, as far as we can tell, are the same kinds of things that, that promote sexual violence. Um, what's different realistically and what's unique is, is it's an un, unusual setting for most survivors. So you're talking about most of the time a single gender population, at least in corrections. Um, most of the folks uh, that we're talking about are going to be men. So a lot more male survivors than, than we think in a lot of other places. Um, and for survivors, their access to resources is really different. Um, when we think about the kinds of things that survivors might, might access to heal, whether it's some form of counseling or supportive therapy, hopefully some form of, of family or friend or community support, um, 
whether there's some amount of self-directed uh, activities or um, healing strategies, a lot of those things are not going to be either as available or available at all to someone who's incarcerated. Um, so a lot of the work that we do here at Bark to try to sort of follow uh, an empowerment model, which is really to allow a survivor to, to figure out for themselves what they need in any minute to heal, um, they're not going to be able to, to access a lot of those, those resources. And that's something that we see pretty consistently across different types of correctional facilities uh, and even amongst different, different states. My colleagues from other states have said similar things, that access to resources is really sort of the key obstacle to folks that are trying to heal. And I imagine, although there are many circumstances in which survivors of sexual violence have to see their, the perpetrator over and over again, this is, might be one of the more intense situations where you have no choice but to continue to see the assailant. Right, and, and depending on sort of what happens, and we can talk a little bit uh, in a minute about sort of what PREA requires if there's a report and, and how that might shake out, um, in a lot of places... You know, what if your your assailant is your cellmate and they literally live with you and are locked into the same room as you? Mm-hmm. That's incredibly triggering and, and traumatizing yeah, for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, but even really basic things, we think about being able to make a phone call to a family member or a friend. And there are lots of survivors who are not incarcerated who for one reason or another may not be able to access that kind of resource too, but we generally expect that a lot of survivors can can reach out to somebody that they might trust, whether that's a spouse or a sibling or a parent, for someone who's incarcerated and who's gone through this experience, first off, their access to phones is probably pretty limited. In most prisons and jails across the country, most prisoners are required to to pay to use the phone system. Um, they pay might quite a lot. Pay, <laughs> pay a lot of money. Um, they can only use the phone during certain times of day, and there's usually going to be a time limit for how long those phones can connect for. In Massachusetts, that tends to be about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, for a lot of survivors, something like calling home to tell them that something has happened to you is a very different question when you're incarcerated than it would be even for, say, a student at a college who maybe isn't in state but needs to talk to to mom or dad or their brother or sister. Uh, For someone in prison, that's a whole different thing we're asking them to do to get the same kind of support. And the lines are not... I mean, I've interned in various functions where my job has basically (laughs) been to listen to prison calls. so none of those calls are confidential, right? They are all recorded. Um, it depends on the exact facility. So one of the things that we've been really lucky uh, to have in our work, and one of the reasons why PREA is such an important law, is that PREA mandates a certain amount of confidentiality for some of the work that we do. Okay. So for example, folks that call the, the special BARC PREA hotline, mm-hmm. um, and we, we do have a hotline uh, in the facilities that we work with, those calls are not recorded. Um, and we have very specific sort of rules with our correctional partners about what kinds of information we're mandated to report to them. Um, and thankfully, it's, it's fairly limited. It's really suicidality, homicidality, uh, and then certain amounts of elder and, and juvenile abuse. Um, but PREA and working with correctional systems in general gives rise to a really weird situation where a call or a contact can be legally confidential but realistically not private. So someone might be able to call Bark on one of the special hotline numbers and reach us and not have that phone call recorded. But many of the facilities that we work with have a central bank of phones maybe two to three feet apart yeah. from each other, right? So they're going to be making a call about something that's incredibly traumatic and important right next to someone else from their unit. And for a lot of survivors, again, maybe especially some of the men who don't feel quite so, so willing or able to talk about something that feels really vulnerable, 
that's not a that, that's a no go situation. They're not realistically able to make use of that. So, what is the breakdown of who's perpetrating this violence? Is it correctional officers? Is it other inmates? This may be anecdotal or quantitative, but what's your understanding of who's actually doing this? So the research that we have access to right now, and again, most of this research comes with the caveat that it's national numbers and not necessarily specific to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. What we see broadly is that the breakdown is about 50-50 from uh, perpetrators being other inmates or prisoners um, versus staff. Um, And that varies a little bit from facility to facility, Um, but the numbers roughly shake down 50-50. One of the unique things, though, is that the context of that perpetration oftentimes looks really different. Um, In in women's facilities, many of the perpetrators who are staff happen to be men um, and oftentimes involves a lot of force, uh, physical violence. Sort of the opposite is true at a lot of youth facilities. So in juvenile detention facilities, the, the sort of very substantial percentage of perpetrators are women um, who are assaulting teenage boys, um, which is not maybe what we would expect to see. Um, and oftentimes the sort of context of that violence looks a little different, less physical force, slightly different sort of manipulation or coercion, um, which, which sort of constantly brings me to a line that I repeat a lot when talking about Priya, which, um, which becomes really true, uh, which is it's not really about sex, it's about power and control. It's almost like it's about the power and control. And every time we see a situation where there's a real locus of power and control and therefore a lot of sexual violence, we come back to that line because that explains a lot of situations in the correctional setting where there's some kind of assault that outsiders who don't study sexual violence have a hard time understanding. Like what's an example of that? So, for example, a lot of folks who think about prison sexual assault wonder why a huge number of of men, many of whom probably identify as straight or heterosexual, might sexually assault other men. Um, what? Why would that happen? That doesn't, for folks who don't study sexual assault a lot, that doesn't compute in their mind. Yeah. But if you keep in mind that sexual assault's about power and control and not really about sex, then what we see is an environment where a huge number of men um, are, are deeply disempowered. So in the vast majority of correctional settings, uh, prisoners are going to have virtually no day-to-day say over what their life looks like. They're told where to go, what to do, who to sit with, who to associate with, what kinds of programs they have access to. And for a certain percentage of those people, um, their need to find some way to assert their um, their power over their environment is going to end up being sexual assault. Oh, interesting. I never thought about it like that. So the perpetration of sexual violence is a reaction to the lack of power in the rest of their lives. I think that's that's one of our theses. I mean, I, I haven't tested that's not <laughs> research, uh, you know, hypothesis yet, but that's one of the things that we sort of see anecdotally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be true for the staff, too, uh, that it's not just limited to the prisoners who might feel disempowered, that that a lot of these big types of bureaucratic structures, line staff who do a lot of the sort of day-to-day work with, with prisoners, they may also feel like they don't have a whole lot of power. Or for, for both populations, the, the impacts of toxic masculinity that tell them they're always supposed to be in control, they're always supposed to have power, they're always supposed to be controlling the environment, um, means that, that's, that being able to inf- impact other people starts to feel like the most important thing they can do. And if they feel like there are no other avenues to do that, then sexual violence becomes one of those avenues. That's very interesting. What's, um, 
What's unique about male survivors of sexual violence? That's a good question and a really, really big one. And um, one of one of our colleagues at Bark, um, our, our director of clinical services, Sharon Imperato, uh, has done a lot of work with male survivors and has a lot of different um, uh, techniques and ideas for, for working with that population. Um, what I'll say is that very, very, very big picture, not that much is different between male survivors and, and female survivors. Um, the sort of same ways that, that Bark approaches working with either population is pretty similar sort of at a very basic fundamental level. So listening, validating people's experience, letting them feel the emotions that they feel as a response. We see a lot of the same types of, of responses in terms of the, the shame, the stigma, the confusion, sometimes the fear. Those things are, although the context might differ, the, um, the reactions are pretty similar. What we see that's probably a little bit different for our population with Priya, uh, and again, this might be more about them being incarcerated than them being men, is that a lot of the guys that we work with have a lifetime's worth of reasons not to trust people that they don't know, whether it was other guys in their neighborhood, whether it was law enforcement in their neighborhood, whether it was school administrators or other members of sort of broader society that neglected them and mistreated them or, or other similar things. Um, so that when they decide to work with us, the way that they sort of frame that conversation is very much around concrete needs. So when folks contact us, especially men on our pre-align, we tend to get less requests for sort of immediate emotional support or validation than we might expect to sort of compared to our hotline for the general population. A lot of calls and contacts for, um, you know, legal needs or for case managers or uh, someone needs to know how to make a PREA report and wants to find out sort of how to get a very specific safety protocol going their direction. It's only maybe after a couple of contacts or after they've had the chance to talk to us a little while that they start to feel like they can trust us a bit. Then we might start to hear a little bit more about, about their emotional side of things. Um, I think broadly for a lot of guys, especially those who are younger, um, they don't have a lot of models in, in culture uh, about men talking about how they're feeling or even recognizing that they can be affected by outside stimuli. So for a lot of the guys, I think they might be feeling the effects of trauma and not have a ton of words to describe what that is. Yeah, that's very sad. Um, you mentioned that oftentimes they're calling for specific legal needs or resources. And having covered, I think, a lot of the barriers to recovery, let's turn to the barriers to justice. What are the resources available to people who have been sexually assaulted if they wanted to do something about it? So PREA can be a really good law because it does stipulate some pretty specific things that need to happen. Um, but it's also got some questions about sort of interpretation and how people put it together. Um, but so at the very basic level, what, what PREA says to correctional systems is you, know, you, have to, you have to train your staff in a certain way. You have to uh, put together your promotions and hiring, blah, blah, blah. But when somebody is assaulted, here are the things that you need to make sure are available to them. You have to make sure that they have access to medical and mental health services within your facility, whatever those happen to look like in that space. So if they're completely deficient, as long as they have access to those deficient resources, they've checked that box. Right. And that's, okay. one, of the, that's one of the concerns about PREA as a big federal law is that PREA is very much process-oriented and not outcome-oriented which means that when auditors go to facilities to check how they're doing the work under PREA um, or how, how the facility is sort of implementing the law, they're going to look to see if 
the process was followed, not whether the particular survivor got the specific things they needed or wanted. Yeah, that's so. interesting. I was just in like my second criminal procedure class of the semester, and we had an entire conversation about how the American legal system is based on on due pro- on an emphasis on due process versus justice. Right? If you look right. at the Bill of Rights, it's all you have these guaranteed aspects of the process. But at no point does the Bill of Rights say, and at the end of it, we'd like to come up with a good out- outcome, right? right? So it's sort of, I guess, maybe the same attitude. So, and that, that can create a lot of problems because uh, we've got a number of facilities here, right here in Massachusetts, um, and, and our correctional systems broadly probably pretty well run as comparatively mm-hmm. um, looking at other states. But the sort of amount of funding and resources that the system would need to really adequately staff a mental health or a behavioral health um, component of, of a prisoner jail is so far beyond what we're able to pay for, um, or at least beyond what we're willing to pay for in that system. Mm-hmm. So Priya says someone needs to have access to mental and medical health, but that might just be going down to the nurse and, and to see if someone is in the midst of a panic or anxiety attack mm. um, or, or if they're actively bleeding. Um, again, th- this is not to any way besmirch sort of the good faith of, of the folks doing this work. A lot of them are doing a really good job, but Priya doesn't mandate that someone have access to, say, a therapist, uh, because the lawmakers probably recognize that most facilities wouldn't have that. So they have to have access to men- medical and mental health services. They have to have access to some form of investigation. Um, that's an administrative procedure. It's not necessarily a formal criti- uh, criminal one. They don't get representation under Priya, but they do have to have some form of investigation, um, and they do have a right to know what the facility sort of decided or determined after that investigation is over. The part where BARC comes in is that one of the Priya standards in particular mandates both that um, that if folks were assaulted and it's within the sort of time frame where a forensic examination would be appropriate, that's what us at BARC would probably call a medical advocacy case, Situation yep. where someone needs to go to the hospital. And they get a rape kit. Right. Yeah. And, and you would know more about that than me. <laughs> um, but um, that the, the facility has to bring them for one of those. They have to be given the option to go for a kit. And that they also have to have access to, in the law, what's called an outside emotional support agency. Um, so that there are some things available. And as far as sort of immediate crisis is involved, we can do some, some good work there. But again, with Priya being focused on process and not on outcome... The goal is not to ensure, at least under Priya, that any one individual survivor gets the healing treatment that they think would be best suited for their needs. It's to make sure that they had access to sort of the limited window of resources that the facilities can make available to them. And do people have access to accommodations like you would see in the college or campus processes? A lot of times people will move dorms, that kind of thing. Are there circumstances where your clients have been, say, moved out of their cell if they're worried about safety with their cellmate or anything like that? So Priya, again, the law itself has some pretty decent directives, but they're not outcome-oriented. So, for example, um, when an investigation happens, um, the facility is sort of instructed by the, by the national law to make sort of necessary security determinations. Um, you know, alleged victims and alleged perpetrators are supposed to be separated and then the facility is supposed to do some sort of evaluation about where the two can be housed most safely after that point. Now, what a lot of survivors will ask for is, I want to move my cell or I want to move my unit, especially if the perpetrator is sort of in their immediate cell or, or housing area, uh, or if it's a staff member. 
Um, and, and the law says, you know, you're, you're really supposed to try to take the survivor's needs into account. You're supposed to ask them, essentially, where would you feel most safe? And you're supposed to take that statement with some weight. Um, but realistically, when a lot of facilities are either at capacity or there's a lot of conflicts already within the facility, maybe there's a lot of gang members and it's unsafe to move other people around too much either. Right. What that can sometimes mean is that survivors are put in segregation, so which we is call solitary confinement. Yeah. Um, are put in segregation to you know protect them from the perpetrator, but it's still treated like segregation. So, for someone who's making a report to to the institution or is looking for support, what it feels like is I did what I was supposed to do. I reported, and now you put me in isolation. Right. Um, and isolation is, for those of you listening, isolation is terrible. So if you want to layer trauma on trauma, that's yeah. a pretty good way to and, do and it. And especially for folks that have experienced trauma and experienced trauma recently. Um, putting them in a tiny cell with no outside stimulus mm-hmm. can be a really bad idea because it right. forces people into their own heads. Um, again, PREA, as a federal law, has some base-level directives that, that are really good on the surface. So someone can't be put in segregation if there's any other place they're supposed to be able to go. And they're not supposed to stay in segregation for more than 30 days without there being a full sort of review and analysis at the facility level. Um, and a lot of the facilities really do try really hard to meet that standard. But correctional institutions are not set up to deal with frontline trauma response. And that's what we're asking a lot of them to do, both with PREA and a whole lot of other yeah. components of, of their work. So trying to figure out how to find a way to separate people because of trauma, in addition to separating them because of gang conflicts, because of potential violence, it gets really complicated. Um, and for a lot of survivors although some of those sort of accommodations might technically be available on the books, whether they can actually get them or not really depends on the facility, the staff they talk to, and how much the staff believe them. Um, And that's going to vary tremendously from facility to facility and from survivor to survivor. It sounds like what you're saying is we are in many ways setting correctional officers and facilities up for an impossible task, which is to be a mental health provider when their primary purpose is security, right, and um, confining people. And, you know, the criminal criminal justice system is the greatest provider of mental health services in our country, and they're vastly inadequate. So that being said, I don't even know where I'm going with this. It just seems like you're... You know, you're raising such an interesting point, which is in a lot of these conversations, correctional officers can be the bad guys. And what you're what you seem to be suggesting is that they're, they're also being set up for something impossible. They're, they're being asked to deal with something that is not in their wheelhouse and is very complex. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the very broad point that we're asking prisons to do something that prisons essentially don't do um, is a pretty legit one. And we can, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. And thankfully here in Massachusetts, some of our correctional partners have been really at the forefront of, of looking at trauma-informed corrections. Um, and a lot of our, our partners have, have been sort of very public about the idea that you know, trauma-responsive corrections is good corrections or, or good PREA is good corrections. And those things are true. But sort of at the end of the day, there's something that's, that's difficult about responding to trauma um, and, and trying to find ways to empower people to make decisions, to take some agency back for themselves after they've lost it, um, and to give them the space and time to heal, there's, there's something at odds with that, and control and custody. 
Yeah, which um, which is what has to be the right, function. Of which is what book. prisons are designed to do. Um, and completely aside from what folks think about the prison system, if that's what it's supposed to do, it's always going to be a little bit tough to work in an empowerment angle on that as well. Now, one of the good things about PREA work is that there are a lot of correctional officials out there um, who've really recognized that at least to some extent that in this one vein, um, there are ways to do PREA really well and that those ways reduce the trauma that a facility might be sort of seeing broadly from its population. You can at least prevent assaults from happening within your facility, even though folks come into facilities with tons of trauma on their backs from their time of, of life, wherever else they've been, um, they can at least recognize that, that that's a real benefit to their facility. You mentioned uh, maybe a few times the idea that good PREA is good corrections. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So, so there's my take on it, and there's the one that I stole from one of our correctional partners, which is where I got that phrase. <clears throat> and the idea is, from our perspective, being responsive to trauma in a facility um, is going to help reduce its manifestation. So the more survivors feel like they have access to healing and the more their trauma is taken seriously, the less their trauma will, will impact the day-to-day facility operation. Um, essentially, if less people are traumatized, their behavior will be less erratic, mm-hmm. which is a very, very incredibly wildly simplistic way of looking at trauma and its impacts. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, one of the things we know as hallmarks of it, right, is is folks will respond in unpredictable ways to unpredictable stimuli based on the experiences they've had in the past. And if a facility is able to limit the amount of that type of behavior that's happening, life in that facility is safer for the facility staff and for other inmates. So that's sort of our direction, right? That if you do PREA really, really well, there's going to be less trauma in your facility and less challenge at operating a smoothly running prison or jail. From the correctional side of things, um, the folks that we've worked with that really buy into PREA and that really seem to, to believe in its cause um, have said that the way that PREA outlines the things that are supposed to happen, documentation, um, process-oriented work, making sure things are professional, those are the ways that a facility is run in a professional manner. So here's a, here's a good sort of anecdote for that. Um, we've had the chance to do a couple of focus groups with different facilities and different, uh, different prisoner populations. And one of the facilities we talked to, um, a lot of the inmates complained that at other facilities they'd been to, the staff would never step in when um, there was sexual harassment. So jokes or comments or statements made by other inmates or other staff about people's body or appearance or sort of their behavior. And what that led to was an atmosphere of um, disobedience. And this is from sort of the correctional terminology here. So in a facility where inmates felt like they could get away with calling each other whatever they want and the staff did the same, the inmates felt less safe. But an atmosphere where the staff stepped in to prevent the prisoners from from doing uh, you know sexually harassing things to each other and policed each other in the same way, inmates felt safer. Mm. The idea was really basic, that if you acted with professionalism, if you respected the types of boundaries that Priya elaborates in its standards, that's a better way to run a facility. Interesting. That's a better way to keep staff and inmates safe. What is a conversation like at a rape crisis center that focuses on victims, right, of sexual violence? What is a conversation like as you turn to help people who have maybe been perpetrators of violence, if not sexual violence? Um, that's a really good question. 
Um, I think that the conversations that started happening at Bark around 2014 or so when we started looking into this grant was really about where is there a need for us to, to work with survivors that we're not, that we're not already working with. Um, at Bark, one of the things we, we really care about is making sure that we are present where survivors need us. Um, and it became increasingly clear that if we wanted to be present in all of those spaces, that meant we had to have some role in jail and prison. There are too many survivors there, and if we're not, if we have no presence there at all, we're not serving everyone. Um, in my perspective, there is a challenge in figuring out how we switch from an organization that works with survivors to one that works with folks who might be survivors and also perpetrators. Um, but from sort of my perspective, we don't we don't pick our victims. We work with the folks who've been hurt. Um, and, and understanding that our world is a complex one and that there are lots of people who've been hurt who might have also hurt someone else doesn't obviate our responsibility to, re to respond to those folks who've been hurt. What do you think is the future of PRIA, or what would you like to see more of? That's a good question, and I wrote down a couple of ideas because I didn't, I didn't want to forget them. <laughs> um, the way that PRIA is, is operated and the way that it's maintained... Um, essentially it's accountability mechanism, is that states are audited. So every year, one-third of every state's prisons, jails, police lockups, immigrant detention centers, they all have to go through a PREA audit. So every three-year cycle, the entirety of a state's facilities will get audited. Um, and the, the auditors are not federal employees. They are independent contractors. Their job is to make sure that this, the facilities are doing what they're supposed to be doing under PREA. They have a very extensive training and handbook that tells them how to do this. But the problem is that the hook for states to do PREA is that if they do not essentially promise the federal government that they are either in compliance with the law or working towards compliance, they could lose up to 5% of certain types of federal funding for their correctional system. So just think about that one last time to see how much of like a, a hook it feels like to you. <laughs> yeah. if, if not all of your prisons are either in compliance or could be in compliance in the near future, you could potentially lose a certain amount of money from certain types of federal grants for certain types of correctional Yeah, work. I know you have a, right? you sound like a lawyer. You say you have a JD, you're like, there's a lot of right. conditions in there. So what that means is that there's a lot of places across the country that are saying, look, we're going to do our best, but our best in this case might not be super aggressive because you're not giving us any money to do all of these extra things that you say we need to have. So I would love to see a special focused PREA source of funding that helps to provide for some of these services that agencies need. Um, one of the ones that's close to, to our heart in particular is making sure that correctional agencies have some funding to pass along to the rape crisis centers that they're going to be working with. There's a lot of agencies out there that are really cash strapped, um, both correctional agencies and, and crisis yeah. centers. Um, you know, a county sheriff's office that might be really at their budget's breaking limit, just staying afloat is not going to be able to pay a local rape crisis center to provide some services. And it's unrealistic to expect a small nonprofit, thankfully Bark is not in this setting, but um, to expect a small nonprofit to be able to provide services for free. Um, they just wouldn't have the staff to be able to provide good service. So it would be awesome to see a dedicated funding stream of some sort from the federal level. Um, likewise, it would also be, be great to see some kind of requirement for therapy or counseling. Now that's, a real pie-in-the-sky kind of thing because we know that one of the problems with the way our current criminal justice system sets up, and the correctional system has been very upfront and honest with the rest of it, 
uh, you know, the rest of the criminal justice system, that they are not mental health facilities. They're not built to do that. That's not their mission. Except and, for Cook County now has their psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> as the head of their true, jail, true. which I thought I think is so interesting. There's a huge question of whether or not that's what where we want things to be, but given right. that that's where the things are, it is an interesting choice. So, anyway. so that's, that's a much bigger sort of policy question, but essentially if you were going to ask prisons and jails to be a place where a lot of folks are sort of shoved or funneled because of mental health issues or that you expect will, will experience traumatic events such that they might need some mental health assistance, we've got to find a way to get that, that service to them. Um, and I know some of our colleagues in the Rape Crisis Center world have done some really creative things with either telecounseling or remote counseling. Um, that would be really cool if there was a way for PRIA to, to either mandate that or to at least create some more space for it. Um, the other two are a little bit more about uh, accountability. Um, right now under PRIA, although survivors are guaranteed some form of an investigation, if there's a report that something has happened, um, most of those investigations take place within a facility. And so the facility staff are responsible for looking into it. That creates a lot of potential issues, um, whether those are conflicts of interest or just conflicts of time. Um, a lot of facilities do not have a ton of excess investigational staff. Um, it, would be, it would be really interesting to see what could happen if there were outside or independent investigations that were required, whether that would be local police department, state police, something along those lines, an agency that understands what corrections looks like, um, but essentially someone that, has, that is disinterested in the outcome of the investigation. Um, might, might, it's always good. Right. <laughs> might, might yield a really different looking set of results than I yeah. think a lot of facilities um, put together now. Um, and I'd love to see an audit process that used federal employees um, instead of independent contractors. It just feels like that's probably rife for conflicts of interest. So to close, my thesis of the criminal justice system is that it's about the people in it, right? Both the people shaping the policy inadvertently or on purpose, um, and the people trapped in it, obviously. And most people who do this work and most people who do sexual violence work have experiences or people's cases or friends that they kind of carry with them that stick with you and serve as a reminder of why you do this or how messed up the system is. And I'm, I wonder if you have something like that that you carry with you. Yeah, sure. So uh, the tone of this might be a little bit unusual given the topic, but you know, my focus in doing this work is really about trauma, the persistence of trauma, who's traumatized and how that oftentimes pushes them into the criminal justice system, who's being traumatized during their experience in it, and how are they bringing that back with them to their communities afterwards. Um, but it's also good to know that people are resilient and that with, with some hope and some support, folks oftentimes react differently than you might think. So um, every couple of, of uh, or every every week, we do a little orientation for folks who are newly booked into our various facilities. And uh, the staff were, were telling the guys there for orientation that morning, you know, a lot of rules about good time and about uh, work programs so they could get some, some time off their sentence until they could be eligible for parole. Um, and they sort of kept repeating, you know, like, we, we want to see you make good choices. Like, we don't want to see you back here. We don't want to keep seeing the same guys. We want to make sure that that you're alive at the end of the day. You know, we want to make sure that that if you come back here, you're still walking. Uh, and one of the one of the guys there for orientation puts his hand up like he's going to ask a question. And so I, I'm, I never know what kinds of questions we're going to get at these sessions. Is it going to be, you know, about good time? Is it going to be about 
he has got to beat two more cases in Brockton Court. Is it going to be about some? He raises his hand and he just says, you know, why are you guys so negative all the time? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking pretty positive right now. You know, you're trying to bring me down. And like <laughs> for a second, everyone in the room was kind of confused. And then a couple of guys started chuckling a little bit. And even the, even the staff up at the podium had to give a little giggle at that one. And it's good to remember that there's a lot of darkness that a lot of folks are dealing with, especially for folks who've been through the system a couple of times and probably seen how it works uh, and probably are pretty, pretty aware that it's not always the most empowering or personable place. But folks can survive. Uh, and with some backup and some support and some resources in the right direction, maybe they can thrive too. Thanks everyone for listening. This is just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the views of the Criminal Justice Policy Program or Harvard Law School. Many thanks to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, specifically Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke for their help on this project. Thanks to Poddington Bear who composed our theme music and thanks to you for listening.